Welcome to the Face by Alex Pike podcast. In today's episode, I interview LA-based plastic surgeon, Dr. Chachi Ko. He's famous for his ponytail facelift. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Welcome to the Alex Pike podcast. I'm so fortunate I have Dr. Chachi Ko from Los Angeles here with me today a board-certified plastic surgeon with over 15 years' experience, and Vogue magazine claimed that you have single-handedly revolutionized the future of facelifts. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm fortunate enough to have spent some time with you at your practice in LA, so it's lovely to see you here for conference. Uh, Vogue magazine has claimed that you have single-handedly revolutionized the facelift, How have you trademarked your ponytail lift and ponytail facelift? Well, I mean, a lot of times when people hear that name, they think it's just a just a cute name, right? It's a ponytail lift, but it actually is it's an actual technique that I developed over the last twenty years, and uh, it involves a little tiny incision in the scalp here and here. We're able to to dissect and free and release the tissue in the brows, around the eyes, cheeks, down here. And then we were able to lift the brows and the eyelids and the cheeks and the jowls up very effectively. Mm-hmm. And that's the ponytail lift. And the ponytail facelift is when you have to have neck skin removed, or lower face and neck skin laxity, a little bit older patients, that needs to be removed then is a ponytail facelift. And we try to do it all within the back of the ear so there's nothing in the front of the ear. So I suppose that is why patients have been deterred from facelifts in the past. Having seen that wind-blown look from the 1980s and scarring has been a big concern. So this offers a different alternative for that sort of... Yeah, it's not only the the scarring effect, but, you know, a traditional facelift uh, is a, what we call bilaminar approach or biplanar approach. So, approach. so what you do is you, you lift the skin off of the fat and you, and you try to leave the fat down on the muscle fascia, which is called the SMAS, and then be able to lift up the SMAS and move the fat, okay? So when you do this bilaminar approach, uh, there's a lot of effects that happens later on. Not right away, but later on, maybe eight months, 12 months, year and a half. Certainly by two years, you'll see the effects. And the effects is that, is that you end up devascularizing the skin because when you lift the skin off the fat, you have, you have to cut the capillaries from the fat to the skin. So you're devascularizing the skin. And then when you're trying to move the fat by lifting off the muscle, you end up devascularizing the fat. So over time, the fat will atrophy and the skin will thin out. So you see P-line tages, which is which is a little tiny capillary that forms in the, in the face. And then you get a little bit of a melting of the fat, goes away, atrophy, and then you get the sweep. So that's what happens with the dissection itself with the traditional facelift. Mm-hmm. And then also the vector of pull is actually backwards. So then you end up shifting the skin. You end up distorting this, this tragus here. So the tragus is unnatural. You end up cutting the, the sideburns and the scars Right now, what people are keen to do right now is to use a scar from here in the, in the temporal hairline around the, the sideburns down if behind the ear and go back this way, go down this way. So, and then, you, then you're flaying the, skin, the, the face open 
that also makes the ear possibly look a little unusual as well. Tragus uh, usually is the most telltale part of the facelift because you blunt the tragus and then you can have scars around there and so forth. So it's all those things put together. When I was learning the traditional facelift, I didn't like it. So I was looking up for alternatives. So I've had an aesthetic non-surgical practice, as you know, for 18 years, and my patients are aging with me. And there's, they're very much less inclined to go with filler. I, as an injector, am less inclined to be injecting the filler. Patients are looking a little strange and overfilled. Talk to me about that. So I think it, as we move on from initially, fillers were great. Fillers were meant to fill right? Fillers were meant to fill the fine lines and wrinkles, right? Back in the days of early fillers was collagen. So you put a little needle and you're injecting the crevices of the skin, the little fine lines, because over time the skin collapses, and the dermis collapses and you can fill that in. That is fine. But then we started using fillers and this concept of liquid facelift came about and it's really kind of been indoctrinated into doctors, especially you know, more dermatology doctors and non-invasive doctors and, and, and practitioners to be able to lift by filling. And that is where things start to go wrong. So what happens is that, is that you're trying to lift the cheeks by injecting here. Does it really lift the cheek no. to inject here? It doesn't. No. You're trying to lift the jowls by injecting the jawline here. Does it really lift there? It doesn't. So what you end up creating is more masculine face, more broader, wider, bigger, and more square face. Especially a female, it becomes less attractive. So what happens to these young women is that they start out with the lips. That's a kind of the yes. gateway to the aesthetics uh, world, right? So they start the, injecting the lips and then that goes on a little while. A little while and, then, and then somebody says, you should contour, contour the cheeks. That, little, that word contour is very, very sexy. And so it sounds good. So contour the cheeks and then try to lift the cheek a little bit and then pretty with jawline, putting a little jaw and so forth. And, and then this goes on from there, under eyes. And I find that social media is just so misleading. I have uh, many younger women come into my practice and show me photographs of Ariana Grande with that perfect, perfect jawline. But I find that, you know, too much filler in that area, they just end up looking rounder. It's one of the things that I think there is a epidemic of, of these people, especially where I live in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And um, and and people are, are coming and now they're, they're starting in their 20s with their lips. And by the time they're 30, you know, they've been overfilled and they're stuck because they don't know what to do because... They're too young for a facelift. Mm -hmm. you would never, you, they, what they really want is a, it's a lift, mm -hmm. but they're too young for a facelift. So, so they're not going to have an incision here. And then they don't know what to do. So they think more fill is going to help and they don't help. And, and I have a whole lecture on like overfill faces and, and filler burnout I, I just gave today. So, um, so at the end of the day, they want a lift. So the solution for that is to give them a lift, but without all the scars. So we can, use, we can give them the lift that they want uh, with one little incision here, one little incision here, and that's it. All in the hair, this big, and that's what we can accomplish with a ponytail lift. So in terms of that surgery at a younger age, if a patient was in their mid-30s and they had that slight adjustment with the ponytail lift, at what point 
Well, how long would that last where they would need a secondary facelift? Well, how long does it last? I mean, I think that what we make the changes is a permanent change, sure. you know, so you can either age. So you look, you know, five years, 10 years younger for the rest of your life. It's, it's a permanent change, but you still, you still age from there. When people ask me, you know, uh, when she, what age you should start, you know, and do some of this, you know, is it too young for a ponytail lift? It's not that I don't age. I don't, I don't treat age. I treat problems at any age. You can have congenitally jowls, you know, when you're, when you're young, as a young person, like 17, 18, you can have jowls, you know, that's just the way your fat was distributed. And this is what you inherited from your parents. So it's just problem solving. Okay, as long as I can do it without scars that are noticeable, it's kind of like a rhinoplasty, right? So why do you do rhinoplasty? It's for beautification, Absolutely. right? So you can do that. It's totally acceptable for uh, young girls or boys to get rhinoplasty at, at age 18, 17, okay? For what? For beautification. So why can't I do the same for the brows and the eyes and the cheeks, the jowl, the area, as long as I don't have the incisions to show? There's a tiny incision in the hair this big, so you don't see anything. So that's okay. So in talking about eyes, because upper lid and lower lid um, blepharoplasty is a popular surgical procedure, but has also been executed for a very, very long time. How do the KO eyes differ? When you look at, when I look at the eyes, the brows are by lid, lower lid, cheek is one aesthetic unit. So when I start moving there, they should all sweep up together. Okay, so when you think about a blepharoplasty, especially upper blepharoplasty, okay, when you take out skin, okay, when you take out skin, you have to remove skin, and what's underneath skin is muscle. So you can't close the skin edges because the muscle is in the way. So you have to take out the muscle. Mm -hmm. And then what's underneath there is fat. So you have to take out the fat, although as you can't close it. So when you take out skin, muscle, and fat, then the edges can come together, but the only way it comes together is the brow comes down a little bit. So if you study the images on internet of before and after a, a blepharoplasty, you can see nice results because you have a, a wider tarsal platform show. The lid shows a little bit better, it's clean, that's nice. But if you look at the brow position, oftentimes there's just a, just a little bit lower, okay? So on a female, when you lower the brow a little bit, in, it's more masculine, it's less attractive. Absolutely, and that happens even with anti-wrinkle injections. So when we do this, or when, when we do the eye thing, our KO eyes, we bring the cheek up along with the brow, the corner eyes come up a little bit, and the brows come up to, to complement that. Everything kind of sweeps together, so it's harmonious. Now, there are different degrees of KO eyes, okay? So it could be moderate, it could be mild, moderate and dramatic. Okay, so depending how how much you, you like that, and that's really discussed preoperatively, and then we can accomplish that by, by the extent of the section that we need to do, how close to the corner eyes that we, that we go. A couple of years ago, I, I found you on social media because uh, around 2019, 2020, our patients were coming in wanting the fox eye thread lift, and I had to find out all about it. And I came across your page on Instagram and you had a highlight reel, which was named Thread Aches. I mean, it, it was just so 
far-fetched to me that this little tiny thread could in effect cause the same results as a as a brow lift. So talk to me about why patients are so misled by by this kind of social media craze. Well, because patients are when they're not educated, you know, you could be gullible, right? And just just because you don't know, you're not the professional, right? And you tend to trust doctors, right? And so these threads don't work. If you go on my so my Instagram, thread eggs is is there? It's just what people sent to me. Yes, I'm not. I'm not asking for any kind of of opinion. They sense it. They sent to me like, okay, this is what happened to me. I had this done. This is what happened to me. And usually, it, what's consistent about what they're telling me that it doesn't work. Number one, because uh, it only lasts for two weeks mm-hmm. to two months tops. Okay. Number one, number two, that it hurts a lot and uh, is is very very painful. Sometimes the pain is is excruciating. They said. Okay, and uh, and it's just financially, it's just not worth it. And for all those reasons, it is very clear. In every conference I go to, every conference we talk about threads. No, not one surgeon or one dermatologist they come up. They say, yeah, it it works really well. The other thing that's alarming is that it can cause uh, puckering. Yes, uh, you you can find it everywhere that the. The puckering stays home for a long time, and uh, and it's very distressful for a lot of women with that procedure. You know, when I first started, when I was young, uh, you know, I, I didn't like my Asian eyes, but now everybody wants my wants the Asian eyes, and uh, so since I can create them, so it's all KO eyes. So, anyways, so you're in the mecca of the plastic surgery world, which is LA. Who is the most requested celebrity look? Well, I get a lot of uh, Kendall Jenner's brows. Mm-hmm. I get Bella Hadid's eyes, of course. And uh, I don't know, maybe Scarlett Johansson's lips. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, Dr. Ko, a quick Q&A. Who would you think, uh, in your opinion, is aesthetically the most beautiful woman in the world, past or present? Audrey Hepburn is amazing. I mean, look at that face. No Botox, no fillers back then. And it just natural aging. Her brows, eyes are so gorgeous, so beautiful. It's, it's, she's, she's, she's gorgeous. I say Raquel Welsh. Yeah? I, lo- I love her bone structure. Uh, who would you say, in your opinion, is the most aesthetically pleasing man, past or present? <laughs> <laughs> To be honest with you, I don't look at men very much. Hey, Danny. I, I actually I don't. Uh, so that's a, I guess most people would say probably Brad Pitt or, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of, I think people like his jawline and so forth. And then uh, George Clooney's chin, something like that, you know. But I asked the girls in the office these questions today and they all said Brad Pitt. Oh, really? Yeah. This is blonde. It looks like Australian maybe. I don't know. I, I'm a big Paul Newman fan. I think he's so beautiful facially. Yeah, when he was younger. Absolutely gorgeous. Dr. Ko, what is the most requested skin treatment? Uh, the most yeah, in terms of lasers or... Okay, well, I mean, skin treatment I think we really believe in is microneedling. Mm-hmm. That works very well. You can, you can add on all sorts of topical regenerative stuff, PRP or exosomes or things like that. So it works very well. For fine lines, wrinkles, or pigmentation, we are very good with a Moxie BBL. 
I think that works, works very well. In terms of trends in 2023, what are you really seeing for plastic surgery? I think things get smaller. Breast implants go smaller. The BBL is getting smaller. I really think I think, really think that it's it's really kind of overdone, and this sort of like the queen bee shape uh, with a big, huge hump in the in the bottom is is probably going to be a passe thing in next next year or two. So that in and hopefully people are. Even dermatologists are still real, starting to realize, hey, you know, uh, we really should be careful about over-injecting the face um, and overfilling the face because people are starting getting the reports, the scientific reports said that there's actually, you know, we put a lot of fillers uh, under the lower in the lower eyelid area. There's lymphatic blockage and they get chronic swelling that goes that that comes and go. It doesn't go away. It, so. That, clogs up the lymphatic drainage and fillers people are start realizing it's not true that fillers goes away it doesn't go away in three months no it stays and it, and it, it builds up okay and then builds up makes your skin look stiff okay so in terms of when i interview patients i, I give them concept of lifetime syringes so say 10 years okay then i then i ask you so how many times a year do you go in to get fillers done people usually say yeah two times or three times, okay? And then they say, then I said, okay, well, each time you go in, how many, how many syringes do you get? They'll say, ah, oh, maybe two, three, one, whatever they say, right? So then kind of add, do the math on that. So sometimes people can be 35 years old, they have had 120 lifetime syringes and they're way overfilled, okay? So when you're about 60, that's when I see the real problem starts. So we have 60 lifetime syringes. For most people, that's where, where the problem starts. So that's kind of a concept that, that I've been talking about. For me, it's it's the the distorted look and the puffiness that, you know, patient just starts to look almost a bit dragged down from the overuse of fillers. So it's not something you know, moving forward in my practice that we're really encouraging. Uh, we're very fortunate to have had a bioremodeling product be launched in Australia last year. I'm not sure that you have it in America yet. That's been a really nice addition for the skin quality. But I think that in 2023, there also will be a bit of a push towards more surgery. I think so, but more surgery done, hopefully done with less incision, especially in these young patients. And it, and it breaks my heart. It hurts me. It hurts me to see a beautiful girl in the 30s or even 40s, beautiful, and they have scars right here for facelift, for mini facelift, or weekend facelift, or uh, to nip in the butt. You know, it's not worth that incision, mm -hmm. right? So it just breaks my heart because I know they didn't need that incision. So with tool and incision, we can accomplish all that what they want. In terms of necks is a common area that patients complain about. Do you operate on only necks as a neck lift or is it a combination? Well, it's, again, it's, it's sort of like it depends on what the problem is, right? So I tend to look at the patient, you know, the, the whole face and neck together. You know, when, if they have isolated neck problem, then yes, we're just going to do the neck. Okay, so for the neck, what I usually do is that, is that people, most commonly patients, they're younger, they have a neck problem, it's the double chin. You can be 15 years old, 25 years old, you can have a double chin. And that's just congenital. 
Okay. And the, the, the way that people deal with it usually is liposuction or kybella, right? But I caution that because when you look at the neck, there's skin, there's subcutaneous fat, and then there's a muscle they're called platysmal muscle. And then under the muscle there, there is more fat, subplatysmal fat. Then there's muscle here called the anterior belly, belly of the digastric muscle. And then to the sides, there'll be some mandibular glands. Okay. So when you have a bulky neck, okay, that bulk could be in the subcutaneous fat or deep under the platysma with all the muscle problem, the gland problem, or sub the platysmal fat problem, okay? So when you do liposuction, you're trying to reduce that bulk just in the subcutaneous plane. You can't go deeper than that, right? So you end up thinning the skin a lot. But you still have the problem. You can still have the problem, or the problem is you can solve the problem temporarily, but over time what happens is the skin of the neck will be loose. So you actually will, will have some premature sure sagging of the skin. The next skin is really, really kind of, it's really delicate, especially for female. Because when you move, when you turn, the skin follows. And if you don't have a good support for the skin, when you take the fat away, then the skin will kind of droop and sag a bit. And sometimes when the liposuction gets really aggressive and you thin it out a lot, there can be actually a scar tissue that forms from the skin to the muscles. When you swallow, it kind of tethers. When you look around, it can tether. That, that can show up. And then they can form these bands as well. So the moral of the story is that the subcutaneous fat in the neck, especially for women, is super important to keep it supple. So when I do the neck, I don't like to liposuck at all. Okay, I make a little tiny incision here. I lift all the fat off of the muscle. Then I go under the muscle, then I take the bulk out of the deep compartment, shaming on the muscle, tighten the muscle, the antibiotic belly of digastric muscle, and then um, removing the subplatysmal fat and then tighten that up. You know how people, when you, sometimes when they swallow, they can have a little froggy whistle that comes down, come back up. So that's a laxity in the floor of the mouth, floor of the mouth, and that is laxity of the anterior belly of the digastric muscle. So we shave that down, we tighten that, and this comes up really, really nicely. After that is done, then we look at the subcutaneous fat. If it's thick, we'll kind of plane it very gently so that everything's even, so that we can have a nice, nice contour. But we don't want to liposuck it because it's inaccurate. Okay, so um, that's how I do the neck. I met a beautiful woman in your waiting room one day when I was waiting to see you in Santa Monica, and she was telling me about her journey um, in having the ponytail facelift. It was something that she had wanted for many, many years, um, and she'd made the decision, and she'd travelled a very long way to see you. How much time should a patient allow for the recovery process from having your surgery? About 90% of our patients are international or out of town. And we, we prefer for them to stay with us in Los Angeles for three weeks. So they have surgery, but we have our own recovery suites. So they come, they get wheeled from this operating room down the hall to the recovery suites. And they stay there for five days or so. During that five days, they get, there's 24 hour nursing care and the hyperbaric oxygen is right on site. So they, they go to that hyperbaric once or twice a day. 
And then they have they can have IV therapy, they have lymphatic lymphatic massage, and then they have skincare uh, regimen going. So it's a whole comprehensive treatment plan, even after the surgery. And healing person. Yes. So we have all those things available. Then I asked them to stay around for three weeks just to make sure everything's good and and uh, then they're happy. And are they suitable to go back to work after that time? Uh, well, it depends on how much we do. What we do it depends on the age of the patient, the type of skin they have. But in general, for ponytail lift on young patients, uh, people are usually pretty good, what I call restaurant ready, in about three weeks or so. That means they go to the restaurant, people at the restaurant, they don't know you. They think you're beautiful. They don't see anything. They, they think you look great. And then your friends going to say, we go to a restaurant with, they're going to say, Alex, you look beautiful. I can see that you, should, you still have swelling, but it's probably going gonna to look great in another four to five weeks. If you're a celebrity person, we're trying to go under the radar. So I said no camera work for 10 weeks, yeah, to be sure. Where are patients traveling from to see? We actually have the... <laughs> Funny you ask, because this Christmas, last Christmas, my staff gave me a big, huge board of a map. And we started putting all of our patients in little pins of where they come from. And, uh, and we were still working on that little project because we only got only two years and, and, and we have many, many more years to go. But there come a lot of them from Middle East, uh, in the Dubai, Abu Dhabi area. A lot of Lebanese in the Middle East. We have quite a few Russian. We have a lot of Europeans from from London. Um, yeah, I went. I've won a few. I remember from Morocco, but they're all over um, in the states. Mostly, probably Florida, New York, and uh, Texas, San Francisco. And what's next for you? <sighs> What's next for me? Well, if you follow me on my social media, my Instagram, uh, you'll see that I just launched my regenerative medicine branch of, of the triad that I have. So I have aesthetics, which is laser, Botox, filler, non-invasive stuff, plastic surgery, and now regenerative medicine. So what we do there is we, um, because I feel like I'm good at working from the outside in with surgery and non-invasive stuff, but the cells are still getting older. And the cells, when they get old, they don't communicate very well. So that's when they have miscommunication, the cells don't work well, and then you have problems with your health and, and wellness and, and things start to decay, right? So we are actually launched with a laboratory that's, that's uh, based in Ireland, in UK, this is a six-year project I've been working on and finally come to fruition. So they are very good at, they're very advanced in DNA testing, biomarker testing. So with a little drop of blood, you can test for all sorts of uh, cellular markers and telomere length and all these other, your biological age and all these things. So you can, we can really kind of assess how your cells are talking to each other. And then we can test for all that. And then we can come up with a regimen of cosmic supplement to sup to uh, encourage and to to fortify the the communication between the cells, so for cellular health. And um, that's one thing. And then then we're going to start our regenerative medicine in terms of 
uh, stem cell therapy, more of the pushing the envelopes a little bit for anti-aging. So we are seeing an increase in male patients. What about for surgery? Yes, uh, I think males are, are more conscientious of their looks because their ladies are looking better and they get nervous, you know. <laughs> they, they, they don't want to be left behind. Absolutely. And because uh, I have I have couples, you know, I do their the, the wife or the girlfriend and then the minister says, well, what about me? I said, well, we can. So typical thing for men is eyelid surgery. So blepharoplasty or a little bit of brow. You can be careful with the brow with a, with a male because you want to lift it too high. They, you can feminize the face. And then um, necks, a lot of stuff in the neck. So get those two things down. The men, male surgery is a little more, more mechanical. So they just in, are interested in getting rid of the excess skin in their neck. You know, you can't make a man look too pretty. Also, their skin is actually quite thick. Thick, yeah. and actually they 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 can be quite stretchy. They, they, they grow a lot of skin. There was that look of the 70s and 80s of a male facelift that was quite obvious. It, it's hard because the skin is thick and is bearded on the side, so don't scar very, very well. So if male, uh, so the ton- ponytail technique is actually more important in males because you got to get that incision right or that, that area correct, you know, because it could just be, there's nothing less attractive to a female, I think, I've been told that for a male to have all these scars and trying to look, try, they're, trying, they're trying too hard. I agree. I think men have been allowed to age a lot more free, freely than women from that perspective. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Alex Fike podcast, Dr. Kayo. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.